Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus laid him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered, and Peter was following at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? 
what is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thank you, Pastor Wes. Going to want to hold your place there in Matthew 26 this morning. It's a long passage, as Wes said, a familiar passage, but we really do believe there is power in simply publicly reading the Word of God. And we've uh, read through almost the entire Gospel of Matthew this past year. We only have a couple chapters remaining, and it's been quite a journey together, walking verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew together. So just hold your place there in Matthew 26, we're going to jump back around verse 31, 32 in just a minute. But let me, let me kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at this morning, catch you up if you're new, where we are. Uh, when I was in seminary many moons ago, I had the privilege of having a man named Clyde Cranford that invested in me personally. He discipled me through seminary. He really spent his entire life discipling seminary students. He was never married, never had any kids. That was his ministry. He just took seminary students and poured into those guys through those three years of seminary and I was deeply grateful for that and now literally decades since his investment there's a couple things I remember about Clyde that I'll never forget one was on the outside of his bible he had one word inscribed down here in the corner of his bible and it was this tremble just tremble it was taken from Isaiah where Isaiah says we we are to tremble at the word of God I'll never forget that the other thing I remember about Clyde was over and over, he said this, in your reading, in your meditation, in your study, don't ever stray too far from the Gospels. Because it's in the Gospels that we see and we savor the life and the ministry and the work of the Lord Jesus himself. I mean, I hope that's been true for you over the last 10 months. I hope it's true for us even this morning as we look through the pages of Scripture here in this this gospel of Matthew where we are to see and to savor the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to do that this morning. 
Last week we began with a big truth that's guiding us through this chapter. It was simply this. Jesus the King suffered, he died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. We gave you a few big ideas that flowed out of that. We're going to give you a few this morning. But in Matthew 26, just a reminder, we're literally hours from the cross. We are hours from the time that Jesus will go to the cross. Matthew walks us through a series of dramatic events in this chapter. We see the plot to betray Jesus. We see the betrayal of one of his own. We're going to see the wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane. Last week I made a mistake and said the Garden of Eden. Now that'll mess you up when you think Jesus was in the Garden of Eden. But it's the Garden of Gethsemane, I assure you. We're going to take a look at that this morning. The scattering of his disciples. The, what happens in the life of Peter that's so practical and helpful for us. And then the mock trial. And next week we'll get to the cross. Matthew 27. But this morning I want us to take a look at Jesus and his disciples. Remember, as Jesus is teaching and he's preparing for the cross through all of this, he, he's continuing to invest in his disciples, his leaders, his men. And we see that particularly in the life of Peter this morning. And I want to, again, pick back up in verse 31. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, they've left the upper room now. Remember, they had gathered there and they had taken the Passover last week. And Jesus had transformed the Passover into what we celebrate, the, the Lord's Supper They've now left that upper room. They've left the city of Jerusalem. They've walked outside the wall. They've crossed what's called the Kidron Valley. And they're headed back up the hill to the Mount of Olives, a place where Jesus spent a lot of time. This was nothing unfamiliar to the disciples. And as they make that walk to the Mount of Olives, there's a conversation going on between Jesus and his disciples that we get to enter into. We get to listen into this conversation as they're making their way up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where it picks up in verse 31. So you guys follow along. It says this. Then Jesus said to them. Now remember, Jesus has a tendency to, to drop bombshells on his disciples. What they're not expecting to hear. They're not expecting to hear this. He says it in verse 31. That you will all fall away because of me this night. Now, I assure you, they were not expecting to hear that. Jesus says, you have no idea all that's about to transpire over the next 24, 36 hours. And every one of you, and by the way, it's only 11 at this point. Judas has already made his way to betray Jesus. So it's Jesus and the 11. And he says, you will all fall away because of me this night. The word fall away, it literally means the word to stumble. They're walking along and something causes them to stumble, spiritually speaking. Because of me, Jesus says, they will not cease being his disciples, but they will fail to stand with him in a time of difficulty and persecution. They're going to stumble. Huge lesson for us this morning in that. He goes on and says, for it is written... Nothing surprising about this. He goes back to the Word of God. This is going to come up again and again. This phrase appears throughout this chapter. Jesus says, for it is written. For it is written. For it is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Then verse 32, an incredible promise. He says, but after I am raised up, after I am raised from the dead, I will go 
before you to Galilee. In a sense, Jesus is saying, just as he was aware of their imminent failure, he graciously plans for their full restoration to fellowship with him. He says, I'm going to go ahead of you guys to Galilee after I resurrect in just a few days. Now, that's some tough words, some things they were not expecting. You're going to fall away tonight because of me. So one of the disciples has something to say about that, and I bet you can guess which disciple it was. Peter has a response to what Jesus has to say. Now, i got to be honest, I am grateful for Peter in the Gospels, aren't you? I mean, I could just so connect to Peter. Peter comes back to Jesus. He has something to say. As they're walking along, Peter, verse 33, Peter answers him and says, Well, Lord, though they all fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. Not me, Lord. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you this very night, Peter, before a rooster crows, before the morning light comes, Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Now this is Jesus Christ saying this to Peter. Peter, as you might imagine, comes back, verse 35, Peter says to him, Lord, even if I must die with you, He makes some empty commitment that we all tend to do sometimes in our flesh. Lord, you just got to know, even if I got to die with you, Lord, I'll never deny you. Then all the disciples, prompted by Peter, say the same. Now, out of this comes a great application for us this morning. And I want to give you your first big idea this morning. It's this. Jesus' followers stumble when we walk in our own strength. You and I and every follower of Jesus will stumble like the disciples when we are walking and depending upon our own strength. That's Peter. That's the disciples. That's you. That's me. You say, how do I know when I'm walking in my own strength? Here, where Peter helps us. In these verses, you see some You see some descriptions, if you will, or maybe some warning signs of when we're walking in our own strength. Let me give you a few of them. How do I know if I'm trusting my own strength? Number one, uh, there's a deflection of truth. What does that mean? We deflect what God's Word says as if it doesn't apply to us, but man, it sure applies to you. (laughs) Jesus, quoting Scripture... Jesus, the God-man, says to Peter, Peter, the word of God says the shepherd's going to be struck, the sheep are going to scatter, it's in the word of God. Jesus himself says, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter, in his own strength, here's what he says, well, that may be true of those guys, (laughs) it's not true of me. He deflects the word of God as if it doesn't apply to him. Anybody else do that? All the time. Peter, the hope at this point is Peter hears the word of God and is reminded of his own weakness, is reminded of his own frailty, and he's running to the Lord in prayer, he's running to the scriptures, he's running to these means of grace, and he's saying, yes, Lord, I'm weak, I'm capable of anything, give me your strength, Jesus, not my strength. Not Peter. Lord... Even if I have to die, I'll never deny you. So the first one is is there's a deflection of truth. 
The second one is this sense of, and there's a lot of ways you can say this. I'm going to say it this way. There's this sense of prideful invincibility. Prideful invincibility. Peter says, listen, Lord, I I know what you just said, but that can't happen to me. (laughs) It may happen to those guys, you know, John, James. They're not quite as mature as me. I'm Peter. There's this prideful invincibility that Peter answers and says, though they all fall away, I'll never fall away. Let him who think he stands take heed lest he fall. Right? 1 Corinthians. Peter is an example of this sense of, I have this invincibility about me. I'm way too mature to fall into something like that. Those guys, maybe. Not me. Deflection of truth, there's prideful invincibility. Let me give you a a few others. There's this independence from community. You hear what Jesus says about them, that that the group is going to struggle. And Peter says, I, I, on down in verse 35, I will not deny you. I don't know what those guys are going to do, but in my own strength, all by myself, if I have to, I'm going to press on and I'll never deny you. Listen, it's a dangerous place when we are independent and isolated from community and from the people of God. We say that over and over here. If you are trying to press on in your own strength, isolated from God's people, you're in a dangerous place. Dangerous place. That's Peter. In his mind, he can go it alone. May happen to them, not me. I'll never deny you. It's a sense of independence on Peter's part. And then finally, I'll give you one more. Here's another real warning sign is this. We reject the means of grace in our lives. We reject these means of grace and strength in our lives that are given by the Lord to strengthen us. Jesus later on in verse 41 is going to say, guys, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There's a means of grace called prayer, saturated with the Word of God, immersion in the Word of God, crying out to the Lord, acknowledging our weakness, crying out in His own strength. That should have been Peter's response, but not Peter. Lord, never. I'll never deny you. So it's a real sign of my pride and of your pride when we reject the means of grace in our lives that God has given us, the Word of God prayer, God's people, the gathering of God's people like we're doing this morning. This is a means of grace. Strengthen you and strengthen me because we will enter into temptation and we are weak and we are susceptible to stumbling. All of us. Right? So these are some evidences from the life of Peter of when we're walking in our own strength. So that's Peter. Jesus' followers stumble when we walk in our own strength. Well, what happens to Peter? Let's keep going. I want to move ahead just a couple hours in the story. We'll come back and pick up some of these things in a minute, but I want to chase the story of Peter. So on up to verse 46, Jesus and his disciples, they go on to the Mount of Olives. They have the time in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying and crying out to his father. We'll go back there in just a minute. Then that time comes to an end. Judas and the mob shows up. They show up there in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. We'll pick it up in verse 46. Jesus says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, verse 47, Judas came, one of the twelve. 
It's interesting that over and over in the gospel accounts, when they refer to Judas here, they refer to him as one of the twelve. As if we didn't know that, the point is, the insidious nature of what Judas is doing in his betrayal, he's one of the twelve. And yet he's betraying his Lord. Judas came, one of the twelve, verse 47, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the elders of the people. So they come there to the garden led by Judas and they're ready to arrest Jesus. Verse 50, Jesus says to him, Judas, friend, do what you've come to do. Then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Now if you can get the, the emotion and the drama of this moment of the, the disciples watching all this happen, their first blown away that Judas is leading this mob so they're trying to get their minds around that then they come and they arrest Jesus and they seize Jesus verse 56 but all of this Matthew says has taken place that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled it may look chaotic from our human point of view but from heaven's point of view it's exactly the way it is intended to be by the way that's true of your and my life every day right Matthew says, this was so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled, just as Jesus had declared it was going to happen. Jesus is taken from the Mount of Olives. He's taken back into the city of Jerusalem. He's taken to Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. They they gather these false witnesses. You can read about that there for sake of time. They have this mock trial. They pronounce judgment on Jesus. We pick that up in verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's uttered blasphemy. They declare that this Jesus is a blasphemer. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard the blasphemy. And in verse 66, I want you to see this. What is your judgment? And they all answered and said, he deserves death. Stop right there for a minute. So up to this point, as you come to this point, Jesus is now declared by the religious leaders in this mock trial. Jesus is now a criminal. He's now been sentenced to death. They're going to take him and they're going to carry him over to Pilate. We'll read about that next week. Now a turn happens, and this is where you've got to feel what's going on here. To publicly identify with Jesus now is going to cost you something. Peter's there. He's in the courtyard outside. He's watched all this take place. He's seen the sentence come down on Jesus. And now he knows, hold on, if I identify with him now publicly, it's going to cost me. Because Jesus is now identified publicly as a criminal. That's all the context behind verse 69 when you see Peter's response. So look at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. He had been following along this whole band. He finally gets there. And verse 58 says he'd been following at a distance. Side note. Following Jesus at a distance is a dangerous place to be. So he'd been following at a distance. And a servant girl comes up to him and says... You also were with Jesus the Galilean. So this little girl comes up, confronts Peter and says, Hey, you're one of his band too, aren't you? You're with this guy. Verse 70, but he denied it. Note this phrase, before them all. Peter publicly denies any connection with Jesus. So much is going through his mind at this point, but here's what he knows. I identify with Jesus publicly now, it's going to cost me. He denies him. 
I do not know what you mean, he says, verse, seven, or verse uh, 70, verse 71. When he came out the entrance, another servant girl came up to him. She said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. So another servant girl comes up, identifies Peter. She recognizes him and says, I don't know if you know, but this guy right here, this Peter, he's part of the band too. He's with Jesus. Peter's threatened by this, verse 72, and he again denied it. Peter does with an oath, I do not know the man. Verse 73, after a little while, bystanders came up to Peter. Now it's a group of people. They come up and say, certainly you too are one of them. Your accent betrays you. <laughs> Peter was from West Virginia, baby. I don't know. No, he, he, has a, he has a Galilean accent, which, by the way, during that day, Peter was really looked down on. It was a distinguishable accent. We all know what that means. And they listened and they said, you, we know you're part of the Galilean group. We know you're with him. We know it. Then Peter, even stronger, verse 74 says, Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear and says, I do not know the man. Third time, Peter is denied his Lord and immediately the rooster crowed. Verse 75, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And there's a lot here. So here's Peter, the, the rock. Here's Peter, the bombastic one. He said, not me, Lord. These guys, they're going to fall away, but not me, the mature one. You can count on me, Lord. I'll never deny. So three times the rock denies the Lord. Now, question for you. Why is this story here? Why do we have this account of Peter here? I, sometimes I ask those questions. All right, why, in the midst of all that's going on, why is it important that this is here? Quick re let me give you three quick reasons because I think it's important of why this is here. Number one, this is here because it's true. And here's what I mean by that. Scripture consistently and repeatedly records the weaknesses and failings of its heroes. The Bible is honest. And if the Bible was merely of human origin and some human being merely wrote this up apart from the inspiration of the Spirit of God, you don't put in here about the leader of the band denying his master. You leave that out. The Spirit of God, the Scriptures are Painfully honest about the failings of God's people. You see that here in the life of Peter. It gives great credibility and truthfulness to the reliability of the Bible. Second reason this is here is it's a warning. I mean, I hope it's a warning for you and I this morning to know the dangerous place we walk in as disciples of Jesus when we're walking in our own strength and what that looks like. Here's Peter I mean, honestly, the guy you never thought would publicly deny Jesus, the rock, and a little girl comes and he's scared to death and denies Jesus publicly. Why? He's walking in his own strength. He's walking in his own power. We're capable of anything under heaven when we're walking under our own power. You and I. So this is here because it's true. It's here because it's a warning. Jesus' followers stumble when we walk according to our own strength. But really quick, there's a third reason this story is here. And here's what I want you to see just for the next few minutes is this. This account reminds us not only of our own weaknesses. We need that. This account also reminds us of the riches of divine grace. 
You see, the story's not over about Peter. And if you know your Bible, you know it's not over about Peter. But there's some amazing, helpful things for you and I in it this morning. How does Jesus respond to Peter? Peter's blown it, just as the Lord said he was going to. How does Jesus respond? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull in a few accounts from Luke's story of this. And I'm going to give you a few helpful things here uh, from the Gospel of Luke. So Luke says, I'm going to read quickly, verse 22, verse 60 says... This is Luke's account of when Peter denies his Lord. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And here's what happened. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Verse 61. You don't get this in Matthew, but Luke records it. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter was physically close enough to be in the eye shot of Jesus... He denies him three times. The third time, the rooster crows, and somehow, some way, the Lord turns and catches the heart and the eye of Peter. Can you imagine at that moment? And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, I'll deny you three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. We'll talk about that. What's going on in the heart of Peter? Here's what I want you to see about Jesus. Next big idea is this. Jesus pursues his wayward disciples. Listen, if you, if you want a good place for an amen this morning, there's a lot of them. Here's one of them. We stray when we walk in our own strength. Jesus pursues his wayward disciples. And all God's people said, amen. It's a picture of divine grace. Jesus is in pursuit of his true, genuine disciple, Peter. How does he do that? Three ways really quick. How does Jesus pursue us? And pursue Peter here in this account. I'll give you three things. Number one, he does it through corrective discipline. Hebrews 12, you know this passage, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is a grace of the Lord when he disciplines us. The word discipline has a connotation of pursuit. We we, we pursue in love. We pursue those we love. The Lord pursues his disciples. Hebrews says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. Now watch this. When you and I think about the idea of discipline, we think of something to be avoided, right? Nobody likes discipline. Discipline for the moment does not seem to be joyful, Hebrews says, but sorrowful. But here's what this verse in Hebrews says. One of the ways God is working in you and me and in our lives practically so that we endure is discipline. The loving, corrective, pursuing discipline of our Heavenly Father is evidence that we are children of His, and He is working that toward our sanctification. He does it here in the life of Peter. Peter, with all of his faults, was so sensitive to the Lord that all it took from the Lord was a glance, and Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. And it wasn't a sorrow merely leading to just this broken heart. It was a sorrow leading to genuine repentance. That's the response of a disciple to the Lord's discipline. Yes, we may be sorrowful. Yes, we may grieve. Yes, we may recognize our failures and faults, and that's part of the sanctification process. But it is in repentance that we return to the Lord. The righteous man falls seven times and rises again. In response to the Lord's loving and pursuing discipline, John MacArthur said this, The true Peter, who had been transformed by Jesus, is not seen merely in his denial, but much more is seen in his repentance. Peter blows it. 
But at the correcting, loving discipline of the Lord, Peter goes out and he repents. And he turns, and we're going to see the outcome of that in just a minute. So, corrective discipline. The Lord does that in grace in our lives. Number two, continual intercession. Oh, this is a beautiful picture. I hope you see this. Continual intercession. What does that mean? Again, Luke is going to give you some background of what's going on in the heavenly realm with this whole temptation and fall of Peter. Luke tells us in Luke 22, verse 31. This is prior. This is... When Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to blow it and all Peter's bombastic promises. Here's how Luke records that. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. So within this whole temptation of Peter, there's, a demonic, there's some demonic activity going on. He says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Do you know the purpose of sifting in that day? It's an agricultural term. We don't really understand it as much. Maybe you do if you're a farmer. Sifting was designed, what's this, to separate. You sift things to separate them. Jesus is saying, look, Satan has demanded to sift you to separate you from your faith. And that's always the enemy's goal. But for genuine, true, believing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can never be separated from our faith. By the way, because we didn't start it, Jesus did. And one of the ways we endure in our faith is not our righteousness. Watch this. It is the ongoing, continual intercession of the righteous Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. And by the way, that's a hallelujah moment. Because if I could lose my faith as a disciple on my own, I would. And so would you. Jesus goes on here, he says, verse, uh, Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. This is the prayers of the Lord Jesus on behalf of Peter, that your faith may not fail. Jesus says, I've prayed for you, and you, when you have once returned again, Strengthen your brothers, he says, Jesus says to Peter. What was intended to separate actually refines. And that's true of temptations, that's true of trials in the life of a true believer. You may be experiencing one of these sifting times right now. And it may be intended from the enemy to separate you. Jesus intends it to refine you. And by the way. One of the glories of the body of Christ and what it means to be part of a community here is Jesus says to Peter, listen, by the way, your sifting is not just about you. Because after you're sifted, Peter, and my intercession for you and you return, then you're going to go back and strengthen your brothers and sisters. Some of you are experiencing a sifting right now that's painful and hard and you don't understand it and you don't like it. You have an intercessor on high who's praying for you. His name is Jesus Christ. And the outcome of that sifting is you're refining the deepening of your faith. And it's never just about you. It's going to enable you more and more to strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's what happens in the life of Peter. So we see... Jesus pursues his wayward disciples through corrective discipline. He pursues through continual intercession. And then thirdly and quickly through complete restoration. Peter's restored. Jesus restores Peter to his ministry and to fellowship. And you can read all about that in John 21. There's a beautiful picture. I won't take time for you to look it up. But 
In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, he says, and Jesus appeared, he appeared to 500, he appeared to the, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then Paul says this, he, Jesus, was seen by Peter, and then the 12. You know the first disciple that Jesus appeared to post-resurrection? Old Peter. Old Peter. And then there's this scene in John 21, and again, we won't take time to look at it, but the disciples, several days after the resurrection, they've gathered there in Galilee, and they've gathered around the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing. That's what they did. Out on the, the boat are Peter and James and John and some of the other ones, and Jesus, just like he said, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee, he goes ahead to Galilee, and he's there on the shore, and it's probably early morning, so it's kind of dark, and he can't tell. So there's this figure on the shore, the disciples are out on the boat, and they don't even know it's Jesus at this point, and John the young one, I think he had better eyesight maybe, he's able to see Jesus on the shore. He says, hey, guys, I think it's Jesus. Anybody know what old Peter does at that point? Peter wasn't even sure it was Jesus. The Bible seems to, at the word of John, he looks and he sees Jesus standing on the shore. And he says he jumped as fast as he can out of the boat into the water and he's swimming like a madman to the shore and here's the beautiful picture even after failure he can't wait to be back in the presence of his Lord he doesn't let failure and the lie of failure isolate him from the Lord isolate him from community isolate him from the graces of God here's the Lord himself who had denied who he had denied and Peter can't wait to get in his presence he swims up on the shore, and <laughs> it's kind of funny. Jesus is there cooking breakfast, and they have this conversation, and they walk three times on the shore. And again, you can read about it in John 21. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, tend my sheep. He says, says it again, you know, three times. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Shepherd my sheep. A third time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Ten my lambs. Three times. Why three times? Because Peter denied him three times. And in that moment, the Lord Jesus is graciously and lovingly, yes, recognizing what Peter had done, and at the same time, graciously restoring him to sweet fellowship and the ministry that Peter was going to have among God's people. So listen, there's a beautiful picture here. Jesus' followers, man, we stumble when we walk in our own strength. Amen? But our loving Lord graciously pursues us stumbling, wayward disciples. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We're grateful for His pursuit in our lives. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to show you one last quick scene in the time we have in this account. I want to back up a little bit in the story. So we saw what happened with Peter, and we saw what happened with the trial. I, I want to back back up, and I want us to look at just a few more verses. And it's really one of these accounts you can't pass over. I want us to go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. So there in your Bible, just find your place back in verse 36. And we're backing up a few hours in the night in the story. And Jesus and his disciples, they've made their way there to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, maybe you've heard this before. If you haven't, I'll just say it again. You know, when you get old like me, you can't remember what illustrations you've used, so they're all fresh to you. It's like the first time I've used this. I may have used it ten times. I don't know. But in that day, one of the most valuable resources were olives. 
And the valuable resource that came from olives was that olive oil. And olive oil in that day was used for cooking and it was used for medicinal purposes. It was used as a cosmetic. It was used for fuel and lamps. I mean, olive oil was incredibly valuable in that day. For olive oil to be extracted from the olive, there was a, a process that that olive had to go through. And it was basically they had to run those olives under a heavy millstone. The olive had to be crushed, and that took place at, a, at an olive press. And if you've been with us and you've traveled to Israel, like we have a few times, we hope to go again in 2022, but we saw one of these there in Israel. Again, it's this just huge, massive stone, and they run it around and around on these olives. And the only way to get the oil out of the olive, the valuable commodity, was to crush that olive. Now, I also learned when I was there, they said, really, there's, there's three different steps. There's... There's, there's one pass of the millstone that you get a certain kind of olive oil. And then they said there's a second pass of that millstone that you get even more valuable olive. But then it's that third pass of the millstone where the really valuable stuff comes out of the olive three times. Now why are you saying all that? Well, Jesus goes into a place called Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane, if you don't know, means olive press. Jesus is going to be crushed here in prayer so that out of that crushing comes the valuable life of Christ that's given for your redemption and mine. It's Gethsemane, the olive press. Verse 36 says, just quickly walk through this. And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, I want you to sit here while I go over there and I'm going to pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here with me and watch with me. Guys, I'm going to go a, a stone's throw beyond you, but will you stay here with me? And pray with me during this time. Like no other place in Scripture, we see the humanity of Jesus. Why is he sorrowful? Why is he so burdened? Well, we know maybe it's because of the dread of the cross. Maybe it's because of the physical pain coming up. Maybe it's because of the betrayal. Maybe it's because of all the pressure of what's going to happen, all of that. But there's a greater reason why Jesus is experiencing such pain. And I want you to see this. If you don't understand this, you miss the whole point of Gethsemane. Why is he saying, I'm sorrowful even to the point of death? Verse 39. Going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed and he said, listen to the words of Jesus in prayer. I mean, Hebrews says this is fervent prayer to the Lord. He's crying out to his father. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, Father, but as you will. Stop right there. He says, if there's any other way, and we're, we're familiar with this, a lot of us, we've heard this before, but I want you to know why he says this. It's hugely important for you and me. He says, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. Pulling from references from the Old Testament, a cup was often used as a symbol throughout the Old Testament of divine wrath against the sin, against human sinfulness. The cup is a picture of the wrath of God that is 
justly and rightly poured out on human sinfulness. Listen, you need to know this. Our holy, righteous God is not indifferent toward your sin and mine. Amen? He's not indifferent. He's not passive. He's not unjust. You have to understand the the holiness of our God and the heinous nature of sin. And this is a picture of that here. God is not indifferent in in a very much less way. and, And this is not a great illustration. If my child comes down with cancer that is eating up my child, I'm not indifferent toward cancer. I despise it. Infinitely more important is God has a posture towards sin, my sin, your sin, that is not indifferent. It is just and holy wrath that is rightly poured out upon that sin. Now, here's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what's hours away from him. He is going to drink, symbolically speaking, the full wrath of God in your place and mine that we might be redeemed. Here's what John MacArthur said about this great quote. He says, Jesus, his anguish had nothing to do with the fear of man or the physical torments of the cross. He was sorrowful more than any other human being in history because within hours the full cup of the divine wrath of God against sin would be his to drink. He is about to drink the just and holy wrath of God that you deserve and that I deserve, and he drinks it. And he is burdened and heavy and sorrowful. Again, verse 42, quickly, he goes for a second time. He goes away and he prays. And I'm going to invite the team just to come on up and begin to play. We're, We're not done. I want you to stay with me. Again, for the second time, he goes away and he prays, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Second pass of the millstone, the olive is being crushed. Lord, he comes back and prays a second time. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus in the moment fully understands that to redeem sinners, he must drink the full fury of the wrath of God. Watch this. And in this moment, he fully understands that he and he alone can do it. Only Christ. You understand the significance of that, beloved, in 2021? If there's any notion or anyone you hear that eludes or somehow gives some idea that there's any other way for mankind to be made right with the Father, it is heresy and it is error. Jesus alone in the garden cries out, I and I alone can do it. Only Christ. Only the sinless one. Only the God-man. Only the Son of God. And he wrestles with this in prayer goes away again. We, we sang in Christ alone this morning by design. It is in Christ alone that the wrath of God is satisfied. In Christ alone, everything necessary for us to know the Father. Jesus continues, verse 43, and he says again, he came and he found them sleeping and their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed a third time. The millstone passes a third time over Christ. 
saying the same words again. I want you to understand something quickly. This wrestling in prayer of the Lord Jesus here, there's not a conflict going on in the Trinity. You understand that, right? Father's saying this, the Son's saying this. There's some kind of conflict going on in the Trinity. Here, this is not a picture of conflict in the Trinity, but rather a picture of what it means to bring our human will into submission to the Father's will, even when we don't fully feel like doing it. Jesus is picturing for us what it looks like to walk in submission to the Father. Therefore, we do not have a great high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one we can run to moments of temptation and trial and testing he comes out of that third season of prayer verse 45 then he came to his disciples and says to them sleep and take your rest later time for sleep is over guys the hour is at hand fully resolved in his spirit in his humanity this is the father's will I've fully submitted to the will of the father rise and let us be going verse 46 my betrayer is at hand Final big idea and takeaway is this. Jesus submitted His will to the will of His Father. Incredible picture for us. Prayer does not seek to manipulate God. Prayer honestly and fervently wrestles to bring our own human selfish wills into submission of the will of the Father. The perfect, righteous, good, holy will of the Father. Wrestling in prayer is that. It is submitting my will and your will to the will of our Father. And by the way, Jesus is not submitting his will to some inward compulsion he has. Watch this. Jesus is not submitting his will to some private prayer language he has. He is submitting his will. Remember, over and over and over in this chapter, it says, it is written. It is written. It is written. The scriptures will be fulfilled. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to take the word of God and in prayer wrestle with that word of God and say, Lord, bring my will in full submission to your will. What is that will? What is revealed to us in the pages of scripture? Some practice, it's not some private prayer language. It's the revealed Word of God. It is written. Jesus models that for you and for me. Disciples of Jesus, we stumble when we walk in our own strength. Jesus, our great high priest, continually interceding for us, pursues us when we go astray. We see here a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and what it looks like and what it means that He and He alone has taken the full fury of the wrath of God, praise His name, and what it looks like to submit your will and my will to the will of our Heavenly Father. Pray with me. Lord, I confess to you there's more here than I could even begin to get my mind around this morning. God, I pray for us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I plead over my brothers and sisters this morning in my life, Lord, that we will see you savor the beauty of King Jesus this morning. Lord, I thank you for your pursuit of your wayward disciples. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your picture of submission and submission to the will of the Father and what that looks like in our life. And Lord, Maybe above all that, I see and thank you that you drink 
the cup of the full fury of the wrath of God, you stood in our place. And you alone are capable to do, to do that. Pray for anyone here this morning that does not know you, that they will see the price has been paid for our full redemption in Jesus. Pray for any wayward disciple this morning that's running from you. Let them run back to you in grace. God, we praise you. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand?